This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, the impact of new technology in breast cancer screening. What difference has it made to missing cancers or diagnosing cancers that might have come to nothing? And as about one in five Australians go back into lockdown and many have to deal with homeschooling again, many must be feeling a bit low. Could forced laughter be a therapeutic option? <laughs> the way that it works is the facilitator demonstrates a particular laughter exercise like <laughs> Initially, that might seem a little silly or strange to people, but people just lose themselves to laughter. Is laughter the best therapy? You'll find out later. Last week, Dr Tedros Ghebreyesus, the Director-General of the World Health Organisation, announced an independent inquiry into the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The magnitude of this pandemic, which has touched virtually everyone in the world, clearly deserves a commensurate evaluation, an honest evaluation. This is not a standard report that ticks a box and is then put on a shelf to gather dust. This is something we take seriously. The panel is to be co-chaired by the former president of Liberia and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who had to deal with the Ebola epidemic in her country six years ago, and Helen Clark, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, who went on to lead the United Nations Development Programme. The findings of this inquiry will draw major international attention given how the pandemic has spread globally and the unanswered questions about its origins, not least because no one knows when the next pandemic might hit. Helen Clark spoke to me yesterday from Auckland. Thank you. So it's interesting the title for this, which is the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. That doesn't sound like a review of what's going on. So the mandate essentially comes from the World Health Assembly resolution, uh, which Australia was a key part, obviously, in, in promoting. And it does want an independent and impartial review of what has happened and how the WHO has responded. But that also then gets you into some extent how member states have responded to the WHO. And we're also being asked to look forward and make uh, recommendations about future preparedness. If there's one thing that really concerns me, it is that if we have another disease like this come along fast on the heels of this, when economies around the world have been literally knocked for six by this, are we in any shape to deal with it at all? So I think it, it's quite urgent to be learning the lessons from what's happened. They're still evolving, of course, because the pandemic is with us for some time yet. But we need to learn fast how to build greater resilience to adverse events like this. What are the terms of reference? Or are you writing your own? <laughs> The World Health Assembly resolution is quite detailed. Uh, it does uh, talk about looking at the effectiveness of the mechanisms which the WHO has. It uh, talks about looking at the international health regulations under which uh, these uh, public health emergencies of international concern are declared and to see to what extent all past recommendations for their improvement have been uh, followed. Uh, it looks at uh, whether uh, the WHO has, uh, or how it's played with the other UN agencies, played a role there. So th there is that retrospectivity in it, but the key thing the World Health Assembly wants to know is how to move forward from here. 
because I, I think uh, it would probably be an understatement to say that as a world, we have been somewhat flat-footed in dealing with this. Individual countries have done things relatively well or relatively badly, but as a world, we haven't had a great collective effort. It sounds very WHO-centred rather than pandemic-centred. Well, of course, the WHO has come under quite substantial attack, and so the, the resolution is certainly wanting to look at the WHO's performance. Uh, but the, the terms of reference will go wider than that uh, to look at what recommendations need to be made about ensuring greater global health security for the future. And of course, if you look at it in that context, the WHO, yes, is the global health lead currently, uh, but it's each country that also needs to be prepared. So let's see. We, of course, have just been announced over the, the last three days. We will start to uh, get down to talking about uh, developing terms of reference along the lines that the World Health Assembly has, has mandated. We don't want a sort of broad fishing expedition that would take years to complete. We've got to be practical, but I hope also be useful. Now, one of the criticisms of UN procedures, um, and this comes to the selection of your panel, is that ideologically sound comes to mind as a phrase, which is you've got to have people from this part of the world, you've got to have so many representatives here and there, rather than, and I'll, I can say this rather than you can say it, necessarily the quality of the individuals. It's ticking a box in terms of where people should come from and who they should represent rather than necessarily expertise. It's one of the big criticisms of UN procedures. To what extent are you going to get round that with this panel in terms of who you need on it? Well, that's a critical decision. What is the range of attributes and skills that need to be on the panel? Uh, I imagine that uh, Dr. Tedros has come to me and to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, A, because we're former uh, leaders of, of governments. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, of course, led her country through Ebola, which was a searing experience. So she has first-hand knowledge of managing uh, an epidemic. Uh, both of us are seen as, as independent-minded and, and well-known in the international system. But we need support. We need a lot of skills on that panel. Now, of course, it will be important to have uh, geographical diversity on it. Uh, but in that geographical diversity, we must find the right skills and attributes to help us do a good report. A lot of people outside government around the world want to know where this started, where it came from. It's almost an obsession. To what extent will you be looking at the origins of the pandemic? So th there is, by the way, a, a, a science delegation from WHO that has, has landed in uh, China just in the last uh, day or two, which is off on that mission. So I think when we get our panel together, what we need to ascertain is what information is being collected from uh, different sources and missions like this, which would be relevant to the inquiry. And what more within the terms of reference that we have uh, could we do? There's many open questions around this at the moment. One of the features observing the pandemic so far has been, it looks like a failure of multilateralism. It looks like countries have been doing their own thing. Britain's been doing their own thing. Even within the European Union, been doing their own thing. Certainly, the United States has Latin American countries. 
there doesn't at first sight seem to be much cooperation going on. Yes, that that is true. And and I feel, uh, you know, sitting on the outside as I have been uh, watching this intensely since uh, around mid-February, that the WHO has pretty much been left to try to cope. But what became apparent uh, quite early on was that this had moved beyond being a health crisis, serious as that was, to being a full-blown economic and social crisis. And at that point, you need more actors. I have been part of two letters now signed by many dozens of former heads of state and government to the G20 leaders setting out an agenda of what you know, we on the best advice we've had uh, believe needs to be done to support the international financial institutions, to support the more than 100 uh, developing and emerging economies who have asked for emergency support. And the IMF, for example, cannot support all those countries right now with, with cash. Uh, so there there is a uh, if you like, a, a failure of global leadership on, on a number of, of dimensions. The Security Council has proved unable to agree on the kind of resolution that was agreed on Ebola in 2014 when it declared Ebola to be a threat to uh, global peace and security and asked every member state to do whatever it could. We don't have that framing either. So I think uh, the issue with, with our report will be to obviously need to be able to touch on the, the many facets of a pandemic. It goes beyond the leadership that the WHO could conceivably provide. It goes into what are the role of, of other institutions and, and leadership bodies. And then how do we get people playing as a team rather than each for his own? You're very experienced on the international stage. You know, after leaving the prime ministership, you've led a major UN agency. And observing now how China is behaving in the international scene and the United States, there's a, you know, major powers are going alone. And the United States has foreshadowed leaving WHO in the middle of next year. Do you foresee much cooperation from China, Russia, United States? I, I certainly hope so. Uh, when I was uh, uh, beaming into Dr. Tedros's briefing to the member states, which was public, Last uh, Thursday night, uh, the representative of China, for example, did speak and did welcome the review as, as timely. And I would uh, you know, very much hope that China would want to be heard in the course of the, of, of the review. Uh, I am also pretty positive about getting uh, informed uh, feedback from the United States. The Centers for Disease Control uh, have you know, many globally acknowledged experts. And, and, of course, had people in the WHO from the earliest stage with this uh, epidemic as well. So I think it will be very important that we can reach those people in, in those key countries uh, who can support and get, give assistance to the review. I mean, just last week, there were reports from China that, yet again, swine flu had made the jump into humans, hopefully not in pandemic form, but it, the, flu, the influenza virus in particular had pandemic genes in it. I mean, the next pandemic could be next year. Uh, That's my concern. That's my concern. If we're still in the state we're in now, how does the world uh, cope? Uh, I've been talking to former colleagues uh, around the world about the state that the, the countries that they're in for the UN system are in at the moment. And, and it is very, very dire. So while our review takes takes place during the, the pandemic, we've, we've got an eye on the next one, which 
may not be as far away as, as one would think. So in a world where bilateralism or unilateralism rules rather than multilateralism and a global response, what traction could recommendations from a panel such as yours, no matter how cogent they are, have? Well, I would hope that at the very least, it would send very strong signals uh, to each country about the kinds of measures they need to put in place to build resilience to future pandemics. Again, you know, sitting as I do in Auckland, New Zealand, I have watched for months as the WHO has exhorted countries to do certain things, and that's all it can do. It, it can exhort. It, it doesn't have any powers. And if countries don't follow that advice, well, we end up in the mess we're in, uh, frankly. Uh, You can never hospitalise your way out of an epidemic or pandemic like this. You you have to use basic public health measures of social distancing, isolating, testing, tracing, you know, the things we've become very, very uh, familiar with. So the wake-up call, I think, is that basic public health measures do work, but you need to take them early and you need to keep consistency for quite some time. I mean, you are going to have to, in the end, argue for enlightened self-interest. Pretty much, because this affects all of us. And again, sitting in New Zealand, we haven't had a case of community transmission for 70 days. Do we feel secure? Absolutely not. You know, we have people returning to New Zealand as uh, citizens and as permanent residents, and a tiny proportion of those are bringing COVID with them. When someone leaps over the back fence of a quarantine facility, we go into a panic. So while we enjoy a level of health security, our lives are very, very abnormal, very difficult to travel anywhere and face two weeks quarantine on return. We have no international students. We have no international visitors. You know, this is not a normal life. So until we're all secure, none of us are secure. And I think that that's the message that that needs to register with every government on earth, that we must play as a team. So are you an ex-president, Sir Leaf, going to operate at warp speed, as they'd say in Star Wars? <laughs> well, we, we certainly uh, hope to uh, get a good briefing this week so we can start to put a well-informed secretariat in place and, and a work program and begin to look at the many suggestions we will get for other members of the panel and for key staffers. I think this is the critical step now to, to get, a, get a process underway which can uh, get us working. Uh, I'm certainly hoping that for the most part this can be done virtually for the foreseeable future because it's not easy for any of us uh, to travel uh, freely at all. So, uh, I'm under no illusion, by the way, about the size of the challenge. It's, it's geopolitically uh, challenging and, uh, yeah, challenging in every sense. But Zoom might be your friend here because you don't have to wait till people arrive in Geneva on a plane. That's correct. <laughs> Look, thanks very much uh, for joining us. We might follow you up on this uh, once you're getting going. Stay in touch. Former Prime Minister of New Zealand and co-chair of the panel of inquiry into the COVID-19 pandemic, Helen Clark. This is RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. 
Breast cancer is the commonest malignancy diagnosed in women, often through screening. The breast screening program in Australia invites women aged between 50 and 74 for a mammogram, a breast x-ray, every two years. A few years ago, x-ray films were done away with and replaced with digital mammography, which offered easier storage, retrieval and sharing of images. But it was also argued there were higher detection rates and hopefully reduced numbers of cancers, which appeared in the intervals between the two yearly mammograms. The other issue, which has long been controversial, is overdiagnosis, namely detecting breast cancers which might never progress, yet are treated with a combination of surgery, chemotherapy and radiation. Some have argued that there's a breast cancer overtreatment rate of around 30%. The pressure to convert to digital mammography was enormous, and Australia's transition cost around $120 million. Amazingly, this money was spent without comprehensive knowledge of digital mammography's impact. Well, a review of 24 studies and 16 million individual breast screens, and the review was done at the University of Sydney's School of Public Health, has come up with some answers, and the lead author is Rachel Farber. Welcome to the Health Report, Rachel. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's walk through the findings. What were the detection rates compared to you know, the old-fashioned film mammography? Yeah, so with the change from film to digital mammography, there was an increase. So detection rates are typically talked about in terms of per thousand women screened. So for every thousand women screened, there was an additional 0.5 um, dete- cancers detected. Now, that may not seem like much, but um, and in terms of uh, the detection rates between countries can vary quite a bit. In our study, they ranged from um, around four per thousand to about seven per thousand. So that was kind of the base rate. So when you're increasing it by 0.5, that's really an increase um, of about 20% sometimes. So it's quite considerable. Now, the key here is what kind of cancers you're trying, you're detecting, because what you really want to detect is invasive cancer at an early enough stage that you can cure it versus a controversial form, which is called ductal cancer in situ, where the cancer has yet to spread out of the, the ducts in the breast. What was the relative proportion of the cancers detected? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we did find, so that overall number that I gave you of 0.5 per thousand, that is including both invasive and DCIS. When you um, look at the amount in just DCIS, that's where actually the majority of that increase was found. Um, So proportionally, DCIS increased 25%, whereas invasive cancer only increased by about 4%. And the, and the implication of this is, of course, is that some women with DCIS will not proceed to invasive cancer. We actually don't know the exact amount of DCIS that will progress to invasive cancer because currently all DCIS is treated as if it were invasive cancer. However, there are studies going on right now that are really looking into it, and there is a huge question in the breast screen community and in the breast cancer community as to whether or not we are currently over-treating DCIS. That we do know that not all DCIS will progress to be invasive. As I said, we don't currently know what proportions exactly because they are all treated. But that's the the controversial proportion in terms of over-diagnosis and over-treatment. But if you're picking this up and DCIS does proceed to invasive cancer, you'd expect a reduction in the interval cancer rate. So your detection rate's gone up. Both have gone up, but DCIS more than invasive. But you'd expect women to be diagnosed, say, a year after their mammography with what's called an interval cancer to go down. What happened to the interval cancer rate? 
Yeah, so we, going into the study, we had really been using that methodology that you said of saying if there is an increase in detection rate, we would expect to see that subsequent decrease in interval cancer rate. So we were a bit surprised to see that there was no change in interval cancer rate, that those additional cancers being picked up were not those cancers that um, were happening in those intervals between screening. So that meant that the digital mammogram was either a false negative, there was cancer there that was missed, or it, or it was an accelerated tr- cancer so not there in the first not, place. Not false negative. So these are true cancers that are being picked up. It's just that these additional cancers that are being detected are either slow-progressing or overdiagnosed cancers rather than the fast-progressing cancers that we see in in the interval between screenings. What were the recall rates? Because one of the problems here is false positives, that you find something and you've got to get the woman back to her for another test to see whether or not it really was cancer. So we, we did find a large increase in um, recall rates. So an additional seven per thousand um, women were being recalled. So those are additional women that are being asked to come back after their first uh, mammogram. And in that um, as you indicated, the majority of them were false positives. So was it worth the investment? So you have to look at this in the context of everything that happens. And there were huge uh, technological and practical advantages of switching from film to digital in terms of workflow and also in terms of keeping up with the rest of the world. So in the results of this study, we're not arguing that we should go back to film. More so, we're saying it's really important to look at all different types of outcomes, especially um, intermediate and long-term health outcomes, not just the immediate detection rate when evaluating a new change in technology. Especially since 3D tomosynthesis is coming along, claiming to be better than the digital mammography, and we'll get you back to talk about that on another day. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Rachel Farber is at the University of Sydney School of Public Health. Over the last week, the ABC has been focusing on your mental health and offering practical, evidence-informed advice on what we can all do to get through this COVID-19 pandemic as best we can. So what role could laughter play? There's nothing new about the idea of using laughter as a mood booster. Even the King James Bible preaches that a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. But can laughter therapies really help alleviate the stress, anxiety and depression that many of us are experiencing right now? The Health Report's David Murray has been investigating. (laughs) Chances are you probably don't feel much like laughing right now. But maybe in this moment... Laughter is exactly what we need more of. Laugh at the pandemic, at the way we are all living due to the pandemic. If you don't, you actually might cry. Dan Illick is a satirist and comedy writer. If you got a chuckle out of watching Ray Martin on At Home Alone together, well, you can thank Dan for bringing you that. And he reckons that right now, people really want something to laugh at. I must have seen five or six live streams by comedians from their own living rooms. Some of them had audiences between 60 and 300 people on Zoom. And that's incredible. Also, there's so much great comedy happening on Instagram and TikTok. Incredibly funny stuff. Impersonating world leaders, making fun of the restrictions. It ends up being able to dissolve tension, absorb much of the fear around the world we're living in, in this pandemic land right now. Comedy is great, obviously, but sometimes it's just as likely to elicit a groan as it is a giggle. So what about laughter itself? 
We're often told it's the best medicine, but can it get us through this pandemic with our mental health intact? Oh, Sam, welcome to Wednesday night laughter yoga. (laughs) (laughs) This is a laughter therapy session. Usually it would be held in person, but just like everything else during the pandemic, it's also gone online. I felt very enlivened, a real sort of elevation in my spirit. Ros Ben-Moshe is an adjunct lecturer in health promotion at La Trobe University. She also runs laughter wellbeing programs, sometimes called laughter yoga. There are two different types of laughter therapy. There's a humour-based laughter therapy, so that's something that we would get from laughing together with friends or at a funny video. Then there's non-humour-based laughter therapy, which is where laughter yoga comes in. So, no jokes, no comedians, you just laugh. (laughs) The way that it works is the facilitator demonstrates a particular laughter exercise, so it might be sort of a greeting laugh like... (laughs) Initially, that might seem a little silly or strange to people, but people just lose themselves to laughter very, very soon. (laughs) Basically, this kind of laughter yoga relies on fake laughter, at least at the beginning. But studies have still linked it to the release of endorphins, the dilation of blood vessels, relaxing tense muscles, forcing you to breathe, and kind of leaving you feeling like you've just done some exercise. It all sounds pretty good, but is this kind of laughter really the best medicine if you need a bit of help with your mental health? I have to be honest, it started because I'm like a yoga teacher for many years. Natalie Vanderwall is an associate professor in cognitive and social psychology at Leeds University in the UK. Recently, she's been looking into the research on laughter therapies and what the available studies actually say about laughter and its potential for alleviating stress, depression and anxiety. But she's the first to admit that when she started the project, she wasn't exactly impartial. A friend of mine, he's a laughter yoga leader, and I did like um, a course with him to become a laughter yoga leader myself. So in the beginning, I was a little bit biased, but then my co-author, Robin Cook, he is actually super critical. So my initial positive outlook, um, yeah, got very realistic. Associate Professor van der Waal and her co-author collected 86 relevant studies across both humour and non-humour-based laughter therapies. I have to say that overall, they weren't exactly impressed with the quality of the research. They say many studies didn't use control groups and relied on small sample sizes. Others showed a high risk of bias. And then there was the results on the efficacy of the therapy itself, which were, well, a bit mixed. We found that laughter therapy significantly reduces your depression. That was the strongest outcome but there were a little bit more mixed results for anxiety and stress. So there I cannot say as a scientist, there is a real effect. It looks like it, but I cannot say for 100% sure. Now, the reason for this comes down to statistics. I know, I know, stay with me here. Many of the studies included in this meta-analysis did conclude that laughter therapy helped reduce stress and anxiety. But according to Natalie Vanderwall, when you look beyond the averages and include their confidence intervals this is the range of values that you are fairly sure your true result lies in, then the positive effects for stress and anxiety potentially disappear. You would really want to see that a complete confidence interval is below zero, and that is not the case for the majority of the studies. But here's the other interesting thing. While you might assume that natural, organic laughter would be better for you, 
it was the non-humour-based therapies that had the greater effect on mental health. Ross Ben-Moshe says this could be because when you're not waiting for something to make you laugh, you actually laugh more. But does this really matter when the overall evaluation of laughter therapy studies was kind of disappointing? Well, Associate Professor van der Waal said we shouldn't be giving up on the idea of laughter as medicine just yet. For me, it's simple. If, if you laugh, you feel better. But if we have more research, like big, large, uh, randomised controlled trial studies, then, then we can have a final say about it. At, at the moment, we just don't have enough evidence. <laughs> so in the meantime, if laughing makes you feel better, go for it. While we can't say it's necessarily the best medicine, it certainly can't hurt. <laughs> A bit of laughter there from the late Southern Gospel singer George Yance. Finishing that report from David Murray. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.